Welcome back to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian and Mike. And between us, we're talking and reading our way through all 21 novels of Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin series. Mike, where are we up to in the canon? What was going on last week and what have we got in store this week? Oh, Ian, we're right smack at the beginning of The Surgeon's Mate. You know, we did the first couple of chapters last week where we saw the victorious Shannon, you know, coming into Halifax with the uh, the Chesapeake behind it there. Everybody just overjoyed that the tide had finally been turned in the battles with American and Royal Navy frigates. We saw the big Halifax ball, which we've kind of been leading up to here and Diana all decked out in going to the ball. And Jack, sadly, with uh, a little one-night stand that uh, may come back to haunt him here a little bit. And we see Jack kind of Jack ashore versus Jack at sea. And we've led right up to the point where Jack is really ready to get the heck out of Halifax. They've been waiting, waiting, waiting because Captain Brooke was not well enough to write his dispatches and the dispatches have been written. And when last we left our heroes, they were sort of running to head for the diligence, the packet ship, which would take the news of the victory back to England and carry Jack, Stephen and Diana with them. We're really looking forward to talking to Ava Sander, who, like Dr. Matron, has enjoyed an arresting assortment of avocations and turned her talents now to writing for people who love Patrick O'Brien. Fantastic. So we're off across the Atlantic from west to east, sailing as fast as wind and diligence. Right. Diligence, yeah. Did you smoke it? Yeah, Sailing smoke. as fast as wind and diligence can carry us. Oh, God, it's so lame. And again, we're continuing this pattern that we've had in the last couple of books, which is Jack Aubrey is aboard somebody else's ship, <laughs> able to pass comment, but not really able to do very much of anything, and anything captain-like at all. Right, and and with the exception of the Shannon, that hasn't worked out too well. No, that's right. So that leaves us wondering what's what's going to befall Aubrey and the diligence this time. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't catch on fire. <laughs> Luckily, the Shannon didn't do that. Let's see if Aubrey's luck holds. Well, Mike, it doesn't take very long, does it, for two schooners to appear on the horizon. Two schooners, um, fast, independent, close-winded ships. Um, one of them is an American privateer called the Liberty, and they're spotted, and we're pretty sure that they're chasing the diligence. Um, I think Captain Dalgleish is surprised to see them together because he knows these two ships. He knows their owners, and he knows their operators, and he's thinking putting both of those ships in the water would only pay off if they catch a really big, fat merchantman. So already there's a sign that they're making a really conspicuous effort to try and run down the diligence. They, they are, and and I think they're they're – pursuing them aggressively. And Jack's a little worried about it, but he's also, you know, Jack's kind of, he's so thrilled to be back on the water. And he suggests to the captain, Captain Doglish, you know, who's also the owner of this packet, you know, let's uh, maybe do a lame duck caper here. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't outlast both of these schooners, but I believe we'd have a fighting chance against one of them. So, why don't we just pretend that we don't have the speed that we have because the Liberty will come up first and 
He says if uh, if he mans the guns and Captain Dogleash does that kind of tricky sailing, uh, Jack suggests that they might take the liberty, as some might say. So, you know, Jack at least is in good enough humor to have his poor humor prevail. There's, there's a fairly low bar, I think. It doesn't take much to encourage Jack Aubrey to try out his very, very clunky wit on other people. Right. But the captain pleads force majeure, if that's okay. You know, yeah. The captain very reasonably says, I'm not answerable to the king. I have a contract. I'm answerable only to Mrs. Dalgleish, which is something that Jack should maybe take notice of. Right. And he's not going to risk the timbers of the ship and the lives of his crew and his livelihood for glory. He says, for you gentlemen in the glory line, it's quite different. You're answerable to King George, whereas I am answerable to Mrs. Dalgleish. And they see things in quite a different light. <laughs> to be sure. Well, Jack, for the sake of something to turn to, I guess, gets with Stephen and updates Stephen on the progress of the chase. Stephen's been looking after Diana, who's seasick. And they go on deck to find this intensified chase in progress. And I, I like this little juxtaposition that comes up here, Mike. Everybody's more or less out loud saying, well, I, I don't know why they're chasing us. These are very notorious, very, very prize money minded privateers. Um, and Dalgleish says, the time I have commanded this packet to and fro scores of times, I've never seen the like since war was declared. A man would think we were ballasted with gold. Yeah. Pause. Paragraph, heavy hint here from Patrick O'Brien. Next paragraph. Stephen watched some gannets fishing away to leeward, the white flash of their headlong plummeting dive, the splash, and he listened vaguely to the sailors. <laughs> I'm like, this, this reminds me of that time in the Mauritius Command, you know, where the, the doctors are talking about a friend of theirs who is a physician addicted to Laudanum, and they just, they turn and go, oh, Dr. Maturin, how nice to see you here. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure those two paragraphs <laughs> are juxtaposed like that for a reason. No question. And I, I think, you know, Jack, not having read the paragraphs, still gets the same feeling and is sort of saying, we got to put some speed on because these guys are coming up fast. And he shows the captain how to uh, rig double traveling backstays to increase their speed. And it's nice because you see that sort of this simpatico relationship between the captain and Jack. And all of a sudden, Jack is turning her into a bit of a man of war. And Dunglish, who earlier had kind of stepped away from that, is now going, yeah, you know, given the way these guys are coming after us, I'm, I'm ready to listen here. And meanwhile, there's continued speculation about what the privateer owners and what Johnston in particular is looking for. Stephen goes back to see the sleeping Diana and he says that he, he tries to put a name to the feeling that he has for her. He found no satisfactory word or combinations of words. It was certainly not the passion of his younger days nor anything related to it, nor did it resemble friendship. Yeah. Affection entered into it, tenderness, a kind of complicity perhaps, as though they, he meaning Stephen and Diana, had long been engaged in the same pursuit. This evoked some memories too painful to dwell upon. So Diana chimes in now that she's awake and says that to Stephen that she thinks this is Johnson. Johnson's willing to do anything, spend anything, she says, to get them back. And she's starting to think what we're suspecting, that this is not just any regular privateer trip, that Johnson's out for something. And Mike, I, I wonder, Diana thinks he's after the diamonds. I think that he's just as much bent on revenge against Stephen as he is bent on getting the diamonds back. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. He had this whole thing going on with Jack and with Stephen. He's a man who's used to getting his way. And so I think this is this is kind of the trifecta of, of revenge here. <laughs> he, is, he wants to take them all and by God get his diamonds in the in the offering. But I think you're right. I think there's a bigger fish to fry here. You know, we've seen Diana and jewelry before, but you know, he, she's so f- bent on these things. He says, you know, Diana says he's perfectly capable of hiring privateers, whatever the cost. He would spend money like water. He would move heaven and earth to get hold of me and my diamonds. They used to be Johnson's diamonds. They are now my diamonds. And she says, <laughs> you shall never have them. Not as long as there is breath in my body. No, by God. So we're, we're getting these diamonds. Wow. <laughs> Here they are. Yeah, an interesting little Freudian slip there. She addresses Johnson in in the second person as if he was present. (laughs) Right, right. You shall never have them, yeah. All of this intensity, I think, is also relieved a little bit by a little bit of an encounter with some wildlife. Yes. Um, Stephen's learning about birds that are on islands, and he thinks he hears the sound of a great orc, and a great orc is at a really rare i think it's now extinct yeah yeah big bird sailors sometimes refer to as a penguin yeah black and white looks like a penguin certainly not the folks down in 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 the antarctic that that we know of right no so we have this joyful possibility here for Stephen to see a great orc and he gets to see one and that's a great uh, milestone for him and just, just to reinforce how we're out in the in the wilds of the ocean we get a reminder that there's fishing going on out here. We're in the vicinity of the Grand Banks and the Newfoundland Banks, and they eat cod bought from a friendly fishing ship. And it's the fishing ship that provides Stephen with a specimen of the, the what we've called the penguin, the great orc. And the captain is pretty sure, Captain Dalgleish is pretty sure, that the pursuers are going to turn back because there's a lot of money at stake if they run the risk of sailing into summer ice and that's an especially big risk if fog comes down on the banks, as it often does. Right. And there's a moment in the middle of a a lot of fog, and Doug Leash, who's been pursued by these privateers in the past, but not so diligently, no pun intended, uh, (laughs) still thinks that, you know, they're not going to follow us through the fog. I know this well. So they're, they're eating this kind of calm meal, but we get a little, a little deja vu, because in the morning, they come out of the fog, and what do they see? Ah, it sounds like the Master and Commander movie, right? They see the two schooners still yeah. behind them, but coming on strong. And we've got Douglas <sighs> now using every ruse he can imagine, and finally says, okay, that's it. We're headed for the big fog in the Grand Bank. We're going to lose a lot of speed advantage because the wind's going to change, but I think if we can get in there, we will definitely lose him. But sadly, not to be. Oh, no. So they start to practice running the uh, the guns out. They hand out small arms. Jack's getting involved in warming the guns by firing them. And they prudently ship an ice fender to give them some cushioning against impact from icebergs or lumps of ice submerged in the water. And to double up, I think, on the sort of implacability of these pursuers, a nice, fat, slow-sailing British merchantman comes the opposite way, sailing from Britain across to America. And they're thinking, surely, surely these two privateers chasing us will prefer this tasty morsel. And they try to 
draw the attention of this merchantman and they fire guns to warn her and stuff. But no, no, no. The Liberty and its fellow privateer are absolutely dead set on tracking down the diligence. Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny. It's not an intense nail biter. I mean, you know, the fog they're looking for wasn't here. They they crack a mast and so they're losing speed. They put the fenders down. And I'm not completely worried. However, I'm I am sitting here starting to think is this going to be another ship taken story again? Where 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 are we going here? Because yeah. at this point, I'm not really seeing how in the world they could possibly get away. No, although I, I think, Mike, when I was reading this, I'm thinking, yeah, no, they're going to get away from this. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I was particularly <laughs> wrapped up in the possibility of capture. I think it's a, something's going to come along and they're going to find a way out of this, but they're getting ready to throw the mail overboard. Right. And throwing the mail overboard would be a biggie because the prestige and the glory come from being the vessel that arrives in Britain with the news of the victory over the Chesapeake. Right. So that was the bit where my my nails got bitten a little, but I think the rest of the time I was pretty confident that they're going to make it out. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, Dogleash turning the ship. He's, you know, saying if it comes to it, I'm going to turn back around, sail between them and Jack, you man the cannonades with what few crew I have and, you know, give them, give them a thumping before we go down. So it's like, wait, whoa, hold on a minute here. But, but as they turn back from warming the guns by firing, they hear cheering. Right. And it's the crew at the other end of the diligence, the crew are cheering and turning around. They see that the Liberty has run into an underwater iceberg. She's lost a foremast. She's lost a main top mast. That's it. She is done. They're not completely out of danger because, of course, they're, they're now cracking on with a uh, with a badly wounded mast themselves and could have the same danger. So Dalglish says, quit hollering and let's get on and shorten sail and put ourselves in a more of a safe situation. But they get their sails changed, they go before the wind, and they flee as the second schooner puts out boats going to save the men on the, the Liberty. And I think we actually see the ship go down. And they give a cheer as the Liberty sinks, and the pursuit is over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's really nice. It's kind of like, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, the, the other schooner is busy picking up survivors from the Liberty because we, we assume Mr. Johnson is, is on the Liberty. So he's the man paying for this thing. So we can't just go after the ship. And and they're trying to get the heck out of Dodge here. I love it. Stephen runs down to check on Diana, thinking she'll be fine. He's kind of, you know, had her full of laudanum to get her through her seasickness. But interestingly, he finds her dressed, <laughs> sitting on a locker with a cocked pistol in each hand, looking as fierce as a wild cat in a trap, as O'Brien writes. And she had assumed that all that noise above meant that they had been boarded and were about to be taken. I, I loved Stephen's reaction, if <laughs> you were to take that. Oh, yeah. Stephen says, put those pistols down at once. <laughs> Coldly, he says, do you not know it's very rude to point a pistol at a person you do not mean to kill? For shame, Villiers, where were you brought up? And I, I think there are two great things here. First of all, the world looks different now that we're free from this pursuit by the Liberty and that they're now probably, definitely, definitely, probably going to make it to England with the news and the dispatches and with the diamonds. And so we get the sight of Diana, not as a soaked, bedraggled, seasick rat, but as this lively, upright, combative figure. So their world looks different now, and Diana looks different. And what the other thing that tells me everything is getting back to normal <laughs> is Stephen having these bantering relationships with the people that he's close to, especially, especially Diana. And this is back to the, if you remember, Mike, the 
dialogue that they had when first first they met and got to know each other in post captain they had this kind of teasing yes. brother and sister dialogue absolutely absolutely love that and and to your point stephen gives her joy of their escape brings her up on deck to witness the scene and of course like always you know and, and we remember this from desolation island you know some beautiful woman comes on the top deck and everyone crowds around her and is sort of competing to outdo the other to tell her the story to point out the ships um and the captain brings a little good news he says given the way they have been running at breakneck speed they're likely to make the fastest crossing back home ever and they're delighted that they will be the ones as you pointed out again to bring the glorious news back home to england so now it's time for us to take a short break We're going to be right back in a few moments. Welcome back. You're listening to Mike and Ian on The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Mike, I think we've reached a really great moment in the unfolding of The Surgeon's Mate to take a little step sideways and find out some more about the structure and the writing and the style of Patrick O'Brien, which means we're going to greet our guest, Ava Sandor. I'll tell you what it is, Stephen, said Jack, setting his cup back down upon the tray, burnished to an almost incandescent luster by the restless hands of Killick, hands that since the advent of the quarantine had become increasingly restless and now had applied their customary level of zeal to not only silver, but to anything aboard that was even remotely to be found among the metals in the elemental table and had even begun a determined exploration of the silicates and carbides. It's this lockdown. We are all of us looking for something new, if you follow me. Something out of the ordinary. Something like, what is it, Killick? Which it's your shoes, sir. Ain't I stayed up all night polishing them? And here you go, stepping foot on the deck, scuffing up the soles again, so it's just more work for poor old... Ava Sandor has written something... Stephen interrupted with less than his usual suavity. With a furtive glance under the table, he kicked away the slice of toasted cheese he had clumsily dropped and unforgivably trod upon, hoping Killick would not notice the desecration till later. Written something? I mean, she has written a novel. It's nothing like any of ours, of course. And yet, ex nihilo. It does have some ships in it, I'm told. Ava Sandor? Didn't she write this book, oh, five years or so ago? The same. The book has, however, been extensively reworked. Should you like to read it? I myself plan to do so the moment I have treated the last of the sailors who have managed to poison themselves with sodium hypochlorite. Why, with all my heart, Stephen, just tell me where I can... What now, Killick? You're as jumpy as an unexercised rhinoceros. Which the doctor forgot to tell people where there's information about the book, whined Killick. She told me they ought to go to www.avasandor.com, which that's where they can find out all about it. Then, spotting Stephen's misdeed, he fell to his hands and knees, grumbling and scraping at the cassinaceous no-jewel which she only mentions it because it was our books that inspired her. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. This cheese will never come off. 
No, not if it's ever so. <laughs> well, if you're not sure what you're listening to, we're welcoming our special guest for this week, Eva Sandor, author and longtime Patrick O'Brien fan. Welcome, Eva. Hi. <laughs> Ava, so many of us on the Aubrey Matron Facebook appreciation page have read many of your O'Brien-like pieces for years. <laughs> and, and I know I, for one, have always wondered how in the world you got introduced to Patrick O'Brien and the canon. Well, actually, I came to it from a little bit of a different route than most people do. Um, very often, it's because people saw the Master and Commander movie. And I did see that first before reading any of the books. But... Actually, I had fallen in love with Patrick O'Brien's writing before I even knew who he was. So I'm a horse person, and I saw a book at a library sale when I was a teenager called The Horseman. Uh, and it was written by a gentleman called Joseph Kessel, but it was originally written in French. And I picked it up because I thought, hey, it's about horses. Um, turns out that it, it was set in modern Afghanistan. It was uh, epic. It was uh, danger. There was all sorts of culture. But what I really, really liked about it was the language. There was just something about the the words that this writer chose, the the way he put it, the melody, the cadence. And of course, I found out later that it was translated by someone named Patrick O'Brien. And this was after I'd fallen in love with the rest of the Master and Commander canon through the normal way, you know, by seeing the movie and then finding out more about it. And, but it was quite some while before I thought back and realized that it was that translation that O'Brien had done, which was my very first meeting with him. Wow. Wow. Well, what kept you going with the canon? I, I take it you picked up Master and Commander? I did, yes. And what happened from there? Well, when you first read this book, it's almost like there's a, a gateway or a barrier to entry. And I think O'Brien puts that there deliberately. The kind of a reader who does not mind being plunged into an unknown world, the kind of person who enjoys learning new terminology, new vocabulary, the kind of person who enjoys uh, long, delicious, winding sentences, um, big, tall stacks of adjectives, those kinds of stylistic elements, the kind of person who likes that kind of thing is going to want more of it. And the kind of person who doesn't like that kind of thing is going to put that first book down and just not go there anymore. I am the kind of person who just likes to learn things. And fortunately, I found someone of the same kind and married him. And he and I just go through life just learning new things as we go, new hobbies, new interests. And this was one of them. To find out that there were 20 more of these books and that there is a whole culture and a whole little fandom, not little, a big fandom, that there's a whole oh. world of not just people who learned how to sail, for instance, because of Patrick O'Brien or people who we have one member on the Aubrey Mattering group who went and got a history degree because of Patrick O'Brien. Wow. There's people who have, yeah. And there's people who have fallen in love with 19th century literature. And if you didn't know anything about the music of the era, if you didn't know anything about the way households were managed, if you didn't know anything about the stock exchange or about enclosures or about justice or the admiralty or horses or natural philosophy or 
you name it, then these books have it. And they are such a treasure trove for anyone who likes to learn something new. Ava, you were an illustrator for a very, very long time. I, I think I, I wanted to say before you turned novelist, but I think you also had that novelist in there as well. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, yes. So um, I started out drawing when I was really, really little. And one of my dad's friends was a graphic designer. So when my folks picked up my drawings, they said, hey, we can make these into a book. And they put them together into a book that was called Save the Wild. And we sold it to benefit an environmental charity. So I'm, you know, five years old. I'm sitting here signing my book, you know, like, like you do. And it turned out that it was a hit. And I did a second book for um, the Indiana Conservation Council. And that was for their more local environmental initiatives. And, you know, pretty soon it turned into a thing where, yeah, I draw something and someone pays me. And I was pretty much doing this all throughout my childhood until I got to the point where now it's time to go to college. Along this same time, I'd also been writing. I had won a a prize by the time I was in high school called the National Council of Teachers of English Creative Writing Prize. And Carnegie Mellon University contacted me about this because I think, you know, being the kind of school very computers, robots, engineers, Mm -hmm. uh, they probably wanted to bring in people who were literary or people who were more um, humanities uh, type of folks. So we went, you know, I went and did a tour and I really liked CMU. I liked it a lot. So I went there, but at the time it wasn't so easy to do a double major. So I had to pick, was it going to be the writing or would it be the illustration? Mm. And so I just kind of fell back on illustration because it was something that I knew I was good at. So the writing took a back seat. When I got out of school, that was the exact moment when art turned digital. And so Mm. when the switch flipped and people started using things like Quark and Photoshop and Illustrator, I was right on it. And I was working at a little uh, advertising agency, a direct marketing agency in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And we were using these tools and somebody needed to write some advertising copy and I could write. So I started writing about food and uh, x-ray developing machinery and relational database software. And I like to say to people, I may have touched your life with bacon because I I drew the (laughs) logo for this little, a certain applewood smoked bacon that everybody knows and loves if you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Neskies. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Thank God. They still use my little apple. Yeah, they still use my little logo. Anyway, I wrote a lot of advertising in a lot of different places, PR, whatever, still always writing. And then I fell in love with Patrick O'Brien and I got this idea to write a novel. And I made a couple of starts in a couple of different genres. One day I wrote a little something that became the seed of my current novel, Fool's Proof. And it was a little vignette of a rich lady in a sedan chair and an out-of-work jester who tries to con her out of a couple of coins. And what ends up happening is um, she sets her cheetah on him. (laughs) She has a pet cheetah there inside the sedan chair. And there was just something funny about it, the way that that was. And I started to write, and the more I thought about it, the more I really just wanted to write for the Patrick O'Brien fan, for the kind of person who I was. And I just started to write in that vein. And the story changed a lot before I whipped it into shape because at first it was just 
just a seat of the pants thing. I'm not really a pantser. Writers, there's this big divide supposedly between the outliners and the pantsers. And the outliners are the people who plan it first and the pantsers are the ones who just write and see where it goes, right? So this started out, yeah, this started out as just me noodling around. And later on, I, I did it more correctly with software called Scrivener and, you know, the other mm-hmm. more structured approaches. But most definitely, I think from the start, I thought, I'm going to do a comic fantasy because one of the things I really enjoy is a laugh. And I wanted it to be funny in the way that parts of the Patrick O'Brien stories are funny in a kind of a dry way. Where also Patrick O'Brien has a lot of bathos, though. He has a lot of moments where he plunges from the heights of something very classical and very um, very uh, erudite and scholarly. All of a sudden, he plunges down into uh, characters cursing in a 19th century way or something scatological or some sort of an outburst of some kind. So I wanted to include elements like that in my book as well. I really enjoy his long, winding sinuous sentences that are filled with many changes of direction and he uses the colon almost as his own poetical marker that um, is like the sentence does a hairpin turn I wanted to include things like that I like his heavily stacked adjectives where they just go on and on often without even so much as a comma there to break up the the accretion of them they form almost like a sedimentary rock of adjectives all of those kinds of things I really really wanted to include them because the people who like that kind of thing they're thirsty for it they want more but there is no more Patrick O'Brien who's doing this now you know now that said it's not exactly like O'Brien if you read my book you're not going to experience exactly the same thing but it's there for for you if you're that kind of reader so it appeals to the Patrick O'Brien nerd in our audience it does and the lover of poetry Ava, you've almost assimilated O'Brien. We've seen you write so many pieces in his style. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the things that really exemplify O'Brien? Yes, um, there are a couple of stylistic things that I really enjoy about O'Brien and that I've incorporated into my book as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Patrick O'Brien, I think, does a lot is that he's very, very cinematic in the way he describes a setting. He doesn't waste words on exposition. He plunges us immediately into the scene, almost in a way that would make you imagine the camera cutting straight to a brightly lit scene from solid black. And so in The Surgeon's Mate, he begins with, The long harbor of Halifax in Nova Scotia on a long, long summer's day, and two frigates gliding in on the tide of flood under their topsails alone. The first, since she had belonged to the United States Navy, and it continues there. But he immediately begins with the, and a lot of other writers, I think, would have tried to set the scene just a little bit more um, so that the sentence doesn't begin in such a truncated way. They probably would have said something like, the sun gleamed down upon or it was at the no he begins immediately with the and then there's a part where he continues on from on a long long summer's day and two frigates gliding in the use of that and is really interesting because it gives us a sense that something is being continued it is it's as if there were already action taking place 
And we've been plunged yeah. in in what they call in medias race that would be in the midst of the action. And they make it, Patrick O'Brien makes us feel as though we caught something that was already in progress by using that. And there's a, a place after the sentence, under their topsails alone, he uses a colon right there. And to me, that's very interesting because uh, we as modern readers, we were often told how to use a semicolon. And semicolons are somewhat rare. They're considered a little bit fancy. They are a, a stronger version, let's say, of a comma or maybe a form of a period. They're something that ends a phrase. And the colon, on the other hand, is really the punctuation mark equivalent of an equals sign where the things on one side of the colon are supposed to be equal to the other. So for instance, we use it when we make a list. I was making a shopping list, colon, bread, milk, eggs. They're equivalent, but Patrick O'Brien doesn't use it that way. The two things on the sides of his colon are not equivalents so much as one is an elaboration or an outcome of the other. And I think he uses it in his own special way as a super punctuation mark that's a poetry mark. He uses it so that he can extend the sentence, extend maybe the breadth of the sentence or the flow of the sentence so that it takes on that hypnotic quality that he wants for us. Mm, yeah, and he does all of that without us noticing. Isn't it great? He does that, and, and not a lot of people do that. And I hadn't even yeah. found so much of it in the 19th century writing that I looked at. They do use mm. colons a lot, but he brings it to us in a kind of a fresh way. Let's just talk for a second about these big, long stacks of adjectives, because we've talked about that in the podcast as well. They often come in the voice of Stephen Maturin, don't they? And O'Brien seems to really love them. He loves the idea of repetition. He loves the idea of uh, an epithet, as you might say. Yes, yes. Now, I guess he must be breaking rules when he does this. When, when you look at the contemporary teaching about how to write English. Ava, what's really going on here, do you think? Yes. Um, so a lot of people get writing advice, which is uh, more tailored, I think, to business writing. And very often the advice that we hear it comes from Strunk and White. And they often you know, give you the advice, omit needless words. And they say that good writing is concise. And that's true. It is. But I do feel that Patrick O'Brien is often going for something other than precision or conciseness. I feel as though he is using his repetitious um, epithets, which we can discuss in a moment, and his stacks of adjectives to create almost a hypnotic quality to it. So an epithet, which a lot of people think means some kind of an insult, because we often hear the phrase, right, he hurled epithets. What an epithet really is, is it is a repeated phrase which is used for effect in epic poetry that was meant to be memorized, like Homer, mm. for instance. The very common phrase we see, the wine dark sea or rosy fingered dawn, those are epithets. And I think that they were originally used as an aid to memory, but Patrick O'Brien uses these. So the fans know what the epithets are going to be. Uh, when the sailors get dressed, they're going to dress in their shore-going rig with broad-brimmed Senate hats and very small little black pumps. And Patrick O'Brien often stacks adjectives higher and deeper than they really need to be to create a poetic effect. So sometimes it's deliberate and humorous. Sometimes it'll be for instance, when Stephen Matterin was sitting next to those ladies at dinner and he said, 
Um, it's clear yeah. you've been a great while at sea to call those sandy-haired, coarse-featured, pimply, short-neck, thick-fingered, vulgar-minded, lubricious blockheads by such a name, nymphs forsooth. So that's clearly <laughs> meant to be funny, right? So Patrick O'Brien put that there because that was Stephen going off on somebody. But when he says something like, a little small, or when he repeats yeah. a phrase, right? Those are needless words. If by needless, yeah. you mean they're not necessary to convey a meaning, but they're there to convey a sound. They're there to give a poetic cadence to the way that the words affect us. There's a hypnotic quality sometimes in these repetitious adjectives that I really, really love. If anything that you've noticed about changes in his writing over the canon or even from his earlier years to and through the canon? Yeah. To tell you the truth, I really was surprised on my um, maybe fourth or fifth reading of Master and Commander to find that, that the seeds of his style are always there. And maybe more than seeds, maybe actually a lot of what we love in later books is already there. So I feel as though, yes, it does change over the course of the years in that he's warming to his topic and maybe he is um, letting himself explore a little bit more into fields beyond just the maritime. One thing that I did do was I went and looked up some of Patrick O'Brien's earliest writing. And I found it thanks to the magic of the look inside feature on Amazon. So his first book was written when he was age 12. And I totally feel that feeling of a kid who started young and discovered that that could become a career because that's what happened to Patrick O'Brien. So he wrote a book when he was 12 years old called Caesar. And it was the story of a panda leopard which he right. immediately describes what that is. And that was uh, published when he was 15. It got good reviews and it kicked off his career as a writer. So he started out very young as well. And this, if you don't have this, I will read a excerpt from Caesar here for you. Um, it right. starts out, right? It says, first, you must understand that I am a panda leopard. My father was a giant panda and my mother a snow leopard. I will begin my story at the first things that I can remember. My early days were spent with two brothers and a sister in a large cave high up in the side of a mountain. Of my father, I remember little, except a hazy recollection of a very large shape which brought food to my mother in the first few days of the opening of my eyes. The first thing to make any great impression on my mind was the killing of my sister. Now, this is not like your typical 12-year-old's writing, is it? Wow. <laughs> this is not your typical 12-year-old's writing. Um, first, because it's very matter-of-fact and violent, right? But yeah. I'm zeroing in on, of my father, I remember little, except yes. a hazy recollection. That's so Patrick O'Brien already, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, most 12-year-olds wouldn't say, of my father, I remember little. They would say... I remember very little about my father, right? But he I don't says remember it in this much. poetic way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. But he says it in the, in a poetic way. And mm. he says, um, let's see, other things in this in this book, right? I've got one that's really quite good. There is a complex, well-organized story in one paragraph where he describes how the mother, the snow leopard, went out and got revenge on the bear that killed the 
main character's sister, right? So he tells a, a really well-organized story in one paragraph, and that's he has the capability to do that. Patrick O'Brien is not long-winded because he can't do otherwise. He does it deliberately as a choice. When he wants to be concise, he can. And I've got other examples, I think, um, from that. But the last part of Caesar that I just want to call your attention to because it's just too delicious is um, the end of the first paragraph was, next day, mother brought in two little gray apes, which we ate, but they did not agree with me, however, as I had horrible dreams all through the night. I have never eaten apes since. <laughs> With the apes, it's always the it's always apes, and the idea that something disagreed. Hmm, have we got shades of Duhamel later? Yeah, on? there you go. Yeah, yeah. But oh, anyway, and cabbages in Desolation Island. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and then um, we have uh, his next book was Hussein and Entertainment, and that was published when he was twenty three, and. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it was actually the very, very first piece of fiction ever published by the Oxford University Press. So that's kind oh, of wow. distinctive. Wow. Yeah, for him, right? Yeah. Way to break into it, right? So this book, Hussein, was about a, a boy who grew up as an elephant uh, handler. I um, uh, don't know how to pronounce this word, mahout, mahout. And I know this word from Kipling. A lot of people who read the Jungle Book mm -hmm. know this word from being written down. So um, this, uh, the main character, Hussein, is an elephant handler, but he immediately starts writing about the public works department of the government of India and the great number of elephants that work there. So you can see that right away he has a wish to transport us to other parts of the British Empire and to show us what happens among people who work with a specialty, in this case, elephants. It's going to be something different. And the opening part of the book describes how the elephant handler's life is, how they train the elephants, how they raise their families to become elephant trainers and so on. So you can see he has a fascination with these unusual distant subcultures and wants to teach a reader about them. And his style is a little bit more dry when he's younger. It's It doesn't have quite the long sentences that we like. It doesn't have quite the poetic words that we like, but you can see the seeds of it. Nice. Well, speaking of things that we like, Ava, uh, I, I think I know you and I particularly love horses, as does O'Brien, or he seems to certainly have a real affinity for them. Tell us a little bit about horses in the cabin. Oh, yes. Um, so horses in the canon. I really do think that Patrick O'Brien must love horses, or at least he does an excellent job of making us believe that he loves horses. First of all, he translated the horseman, makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But he also includes some really wonderful depiction of horses from within. Like, for instance, at the beginning of Post Captain, when they're joining the hunt, that wonderful scene where he describes the gelding's thoughts, right? Where the yeah. gelding turns his ears and he says, oh, I smell a mare, a mare, you know, and he can, he puts himself into the mindset of these animals. And that actually came in earlier in his writing, in his first maritime book, The Golden Ocean. It was mm -hmm, mm -hmm. earlier than the canon, right? He has a couple of Irish youngsters who are going to see. And his description of the horse that they ride, which is 
um, Placidus by name, the horse that they ride, Placidus, who you have to speak Latin to continuously as you ride him or else he will stop. Only somebody who really knows horses would ever imagine a thing like that, right? And yet it's totally possible <laughs> because in the story, they say that the one of the characters father used to speak in Latin. And if he stopped, that meant he had fallen asleep and that the horse would stop to avoid dropping him. And in the, <sighs> yeah. And the horses sometimes deliberately shake or shrug Jack off. And sometimes they right. are kind, right? Sometimes they, they deliberately don't. Um, and then there's the mayor, Lala, who uh, Jack has such a report with who, when she rides her, he can tell that that their minds are together. When Patrick O'Brien says his heart went out to her from the very first, horses know when your heart goes out to them. They can they can feel mm-hmm. it. Yeah. They have a communication with us that's by the sense of touch. And Ava, I think what a few people have especially liked in your book is the way that you've also depicted this relationship with a horse in the same way. Yes, I do have a character who is a horse woman. And there's a scene where she sits or lies on a horse. She doesn't ride it per se. She just lets it wander during the night because she's in despair. And the people who liked that scene, I think what they particularly enjoyed about it was the unspoken communication between a horse and its rider or owner. Uh, I do take a moment to speak from the horse's point of view, just as Patrick O'Brien does. And, you know, it is distracting often when authors hop from one point of view to another, but this was just too good not to do. Because to hear from the point of view of an animal whose language is of touch rather than words was a really cool challenge. And I'm glad that readers have felt I succeeded in that. I really think horses deserve that. Something that's really interesting about Patrick O'Brien, I find, is that a lot of people have compared him to Jane Austen. Like a lot of people say, oh, because he writes these domestic dramas, he's Jane Austen. But I actually went ahead and I looked up some um, some segments of, let's say, um, Pride and Prejudice, which is the one that people often use as an example of the domesticity, you know, and the the setting that he creates in Post Captain, let's say. And it's either a love it or hate it thing. You know, sometimes people don't care for that. They want to get right back to the ocean. But what I found was really interesting was his actual style is less like Austin and more like early Charles Dickens. So, Ah. yes. And so another book that I really, really love, it's just so, so delightful and adorable and, and sad and many other things is the Pickwick Papers. And the Pickwick Papers was actually Dickens's first published like as a single actually it wasn't published singly it was episodic let's say pickwick papers was his first novel he had been writing sketches before like little skits and pieces but the pickwick papers came out as a series and yet people ate it up they absolutely loved it it was the harry potter of its day it had a whole cottage industry of his characters there was merch back in the day there were sam weller toys and playing cards and every single thing and people love love loved it and i think one of the reasons why it was so well received and so good was because the characters had a ton of variety he often had them speaking in different kinds of dialects very much like patrick o'brien does for the sailors and for killick and uh, the sethians and many others. 
And even before the character Sam Weller was introduced, there's a scene that I circled here where there is a character in a coach who is speaking with an unusual dialect. So he's got people who are traveling in stagecoaches, just like in Patrick O'Brien. And um, another thing that I found extremely interesting was right away in chapter two of the Pickwick Papers, um, Dickens already establishes that he's got a character which speaks in fragments of a sentence, punctuated by dashes. And you see this a lot in O'Brien. Just There's a scene in Post Captain. You can basically just open the, the Patrick O'Brien novels and look for dashes, and you're going to come across things that are, are written in a kind of a telegraphic way, such as, there was a girl, do you see, that I had met in Sussex, dash, neighbors, dash. And when I had a bad time in the Admiralty Court with my neutrals, there's a lot left out in between those dashes. Well, in the Pickwick Papers, there's a character who tells his whole life story that way, his whole his whole romantic mm-hmm. life story that way. Conquests, thousands. Don Bolero, Fizgig, dash. Grandy, dash. Only daughter, dash. Donna Christina, dash. Splendid creature, dash. Loved me to distraction, dash. Jealous father, dash. High-souled daughter, dash. Handsome Englishman, dash. Donna Christina in despair, dash. Prussic acid, dash. Stomach pump in my portmanteau, dash. Operation performed, (laughs) dash. Old Bolaro in ecstasies. Consent to our union, dash. Join hands and floods of tears, dash. Romantic story, dash. Very. And that is from Dickens. And I find things like that and the dialect and the loquacious stranger who speaks to him in the stagecoach. And one of the early lines is, here you are, sir, shouted a strange specimen of the human race in a sackcloth coat and an apron of the same who, with a brass label and number around his neck, looked as if he were cataloged in some collection of rarities. That's not O'Brien, that's Dickens. So I find that interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So he took his antecedents from places maybe that we didn't think of. Just because it's a domestic drama around a breakfast table doesn't mean it's necessarily out of Jane Austen. Yeah, and I really like the passage at the beginning of HMS Surprise where we have this dialogue with Admiral Parr in the Admiralty Committee Mm -hmm. who's beasting Admiral Hart for being a bit self-interested at the expense of Aubrey and Maturin. Ava, could you read that Mm -hmm. part out for us as well? No, sir, it would not, cried Admiral Parr, his port wine face flushing purple, a most improper suggestion by God. His voice trailed away in a series of coughs and grunts through which could be heard infernal presumption, dash, new member, dash, mere rear admiral, dash, little shit. <laughs> Great stuff. <laughs> that is hilarious. I, I love how it punctures the pomposity of heart really brilliantly and and it gives character to admiral parr Mm -hmm. so eva in case we've got listeners who haven't read the book yet and would like to find out more about it can you tell us how they can do that or find out more about your work generally yes the book did launch on september 30th and you can also visit my website for more information about it which is avasandor.com, spelled E-V-A-S-A-N-D-O-R.com. 
and it's available on all the major online retailers. So you have your Amazon, you have Barnes and Noble, Kobo, Indigo, Apple Books, Google Play Books. Um, all the major retailers are carrying it, and it's available in an ebook as well as paperback. So you can enjoy it either uh, electronically or for realsies. Nice. <laughs> The book is Fool's Proof, available wherever books are found. And this has been our talk with Ava Sander, a Patrick O'Brien admirer per excellence, longtime illustrator, now novelist. Ava, thanks so much for joining us here on The Lubber's Hole. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful trip up through The Lubber's Hole. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So we want to say thank you once again to Ava for joining us. We had a great time talking to her. We hope you enjoyed it too. So, Mike, it feels like we've made some progress in this fairly short chapter. We've managed to shake off the pesky Americans. We've managed to navigate through fogs and ice. Stephen and Diana are still aboard ship. They're not married yet, but Diana's coming round a bit. Jack is on his way to be the proud bearer of good news, but it it feels oddly like we haven't really launched the story yet. You know, we're we're three chapters in, and I think in O'Brien books it's normal to take right. a couple of chapters to get going, but here we are. We're about to get to chapter four, and my, I I can't tell what's the twist going to be. What people talk about as the inciting event, you know, the complication. What's going to set the story going? I mean, I'm in the story and I'm engaged and I'm paying attention, but I have the feeling that we haven't heard yet what's going to compel the characters through the rest of this book. Is it going to be something involving Stephen and Diana and marriage and pregnancy? Is it going to be something about Jack getting home and taking care of Kimber or negotiating for a new frigate from the Admiralty because Ray's in charge there? Is, Is there intelligence work for Stephen to be done? There's loads of possibilities and I don't think O'Brien has really tipped his hand yet. I don't think he's shown us where the story's headed. No, no, no. And and we do have that one little inkling, you know, about Stephen heading possibly into France in the middle of the war. But I'm with you. It's like, I don't get it. And and in all these complications, I don't see a ship on the horizon. <laughs> where, where's the ship we're all love? And we've been a long time, a long, long time, many miles of ocean, many pages turned in the books many years <laughs> 1812 and 1813 a b and c have gone by several times <laughs> and jack still hasn't been in command of the ship for what feels like ages right well i'm really dying to find out what happens next what do you say in next week to a little bit more patrick o'brien mike with all my heart I wanted to invent my own swearing. And one area that hasn't been explored is, you know, disease, pestilence. (laughs) Perfect.